Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 10, Let's Get Ready to Rumble, The Council of Nicaea. And here we are. It's May of 325 AD. At long last, Constantine and the attendees have now gathered together for the Council of Nicaea. The die is cast, the Rubicon is crossed, the proverbial bread is broken, and Christianity is about to be forever changed. How did this extraordinary council unfold? What moved the bishops to endorse Alexander's bold theology and reject that of Arius and the Eusebii? Well, dear listener, I can sum up the whole council for you in five words. Just five simple words to tell you almost everything there is to know about the proceedings of this extraordinary gathering. Here they are. We don't know for sure. I know, I know. The most important council in church history since the first century, and nobody thought to take the meeting minutes. In fairness to them, though, writing was expensive and hard. Also, the Council of Nicaea lasted four months or so, so the secretary's hand would have been really, really tired by the end of it. So we don't have any detailed recording of what happened. What we do have are the final documents that the council produced, and the recollections of several attendees written down after the fact. This allows us to construct a little bit of the proceedings and jostlings that were going on during the whole thing. So, who attended the council? Well, as we know from last time, all of the major Episcopal players were there. Bishop Alexander was in attendance, along with his plucky young secretary, a deacon named Athanasius. Athanasius is going to come into his own shortly after the events of the council, but for now, he is basically just Bishop Alexander's gopher. He sits in the meetings, not talking, just occasionally getting up to get Alexander a coffee or a snack or something. Marcellus of Ancyra was also there, probably yapping loudly about how much he just loved the term homoousius, it's just the best, guys, and drawing elaborate Venn diagrams to show how the Son and Spirit were just part of the Father's mind, and how this is totally not modalism. All the while, the homoousians cringed and looked in vain for some way to escape from conversation with Marcellus of Ancyra. On the other side of the theological fence, both the Eusebii were in attendance, along with some of their friends. Eusebius of Caesarea was around, jockeying for influence and looking for an opportunity to clear his name of those nasty heresy charges. Eusebius of Nicomedia was hanging out, probably enjoying the fact that this great and holy council had been assembled so very close to his own see. Noticeably absent from people's recollection, however, was Arius himself. He could have been there, but there is actually no record that he was there. As a mere priest and not a bishop, he would not have been included in the general invitation. Now, it's possible Constantine had asked him to be there since he was, you know, 50% of the cause of the whole controversy, but we don't know for sure. If he was there, he clearly didn't make much of an impression since nobody, even his supporters, remembered his presence. Interestingly enough, 
We also know that the council was almost exclusively attended by bishops from the eastern half of the empire. The Bishop of Rome was ill at the time and sent two priests to act as his deputies. There were perhaps ten other bishops from the west at most. We don't know why the western bishops didn't attend. Perhaps the greater distance involved in traveling to the eastern part of the empire was a factor. But this has implications for the way Nicaea has been received. For many Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians, Nicaea is the first of the seven so-called ecumenical councils. Ecumenical is just a $10 word for universal. So an ecumenical council is one to which all the bishops of the whole Christian church were invited. Now, it's unclear whether Nicaea actually was truly universal. There were Christians living outside the Roman Empire who weren't invited. And as we have seen, only somewhere between one-sixth and one-ninth of the invitees actually showed up. And now we know that almost all of them were from the east rather than the west. Now, perhaps it's enough to say that every bishop in the Roman Empire was invited, and if they chose not to show up, that is their business. But we cannot assume that Nicaea was a representative sample of the faithful. In several important ways, it was not. Also in attendance was Constantine, at least at the beginning. We know that he entered at the beginning arrayed in all of his imperial bling, glistening with purple and gold regalia. But in a gracious show of humility, he let the bishop sit before him, then gave an opening speech to the council and started the day's proceedings. We don't know if he stayed for the whole thing or left partway through. Since Nicaea was so close to the new capital, and it went on for four months, it's also possible Constantine bounced back and forth, working in his capital and popping over to Nicaea to herd cats, I, I mean bishops, when needed. So what happened during the council proceedings? For this, we have to turn to the recollections of those members who attended. And the first one we're going to turn to is, who else? Eusebius of Caesarea. As soon as things got going, Eusebius tells us that he jumped right to the front of the lines of the proceeding and said something like, Hey, guys, I've, I've got a creed right here. This is the creed of my hometown, and this is what I have always believed, and it's super orthodox. I mean, we, we all agree that, that it's orthodox, right? You, you all agree that I'm orthodox, right? Why are you fighting? Why are you arguing? Pick, pick this creed. Pick my creed. Pick me. Not those stupid jerks at Antioch who excommunicated me. Pick me! Pick me, pick me, pick me! <laughs> okay, I may have made that last part up. But I do think it accurately captures the vibe that Eusebius was bringing to the party. He may have been sympathetic to Arius, but his primary goal was to exonerate his own orthodoxy through the external validation of the council. That's right, the road to Nicaea is brought to you by external validation. We all love being validated, it's just the best. Now there's an easy new way to get validated that doesn't rely on inner self-assurance or expensive therapy. Try external validation, a nifty trick to pressure your friends, family, co-workers, and casual acquaintances into telling you you're the best whenever you're down. Why spend time and effort validating yourself when you can just guilt other people into doing it for you? External validation. 
listening to your inner child and then tuning it right back out since 1897. Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that his creed formed the backbone of the Nicene Creed that was eventually created. So here is that creed that he presented. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, God from God, light from light, life from life, Son only begotten, firstborn of every creature, before all the ages, begotten from the Father, by whom also all things were made, who for our salvation was made flesh, and lived among men, and suffered, and rose again the third day, and ascended to the Father, and will come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead. And we believe also in one Holy Ghost. If that sounds an awful lot to you like the Apostles' Creed, you are right. It's structured in much the same way as the ancient rules of faith were, and it probably grew out of one such expression. Eusebius would have been keen to present something that sounded as orthodox and inoffensive as possible in order to get himself vindicated. And by his own account, he succeeded. Almost. Eusebius tells us that after he read his creed, Constantine stood up, applauded for his BFF, and told Eusebius that the creed was perfectly orthodox, thank you very much, it was just lacking one thing. It needed the word homoousius to make it just right. So, according to Eusebius, the word homoousius, so beloved of Alexander and his friends, was inserted into the creed solely by decree of the Emperor Constantine. You should trust Eusebius on this about as far as you can throw him. For starters, nobody else tells the story this way, and it is pretty unlikely that the Homoousians and their friends wouldn't have been crowing about the fact that the Emperor himself was on their side. And furthermore, we already know what Constantine thinks about the label Homoousius because he told us in the letter from last time. He thinks it's irrelevant. So for him to then insist that that is the sine qua non of orthodoxy beggars belief. And, of course, we have to consider that Eusebius of Caesarea, being anxious to secure his orthodoxy and having a somewhat flexible relationship with historical truth anyway, is highly likely to have embellished this story. It's hard to tell exactly where his exaggerations end. Interestingly, other witnesses also mention that a bishop named Eusebius presented his creed to the council, and they say that it was dismissed out of hand by the assembly. Now, there are two possibilities here. The first is that there are just too many people named Eusebius. And what happened was that Eusebius of Caesarea presented his creed, which was basically accepted, and Eusebius of Nicomedia presented a different creed that everyone laughed out of the room. The second and funnier possibility is that Eusebius of Caesarea presented his own creed and he thought it was good, but everybody else thought it was hot garbage. The first possibility is the more likely according to serious historians, but I will leave it to you to determine your own headcanon. Now, whatever happened at the beginning of the council, the sources are unanimous that it became clear pretty quickly that the Homoousians and their friends had the upper hand. The Eusebii had a distinctly minority share of the vote, 
and they were steadily peeled off one by one as Alexander and his allies patiently explained what they meant. A big reservation was that Homoousius could imply that the son was materially generated by the father in that ooey-gooey, flubber-like mode envisioned by Tertullian. Once Alexander and his allies made it clear they did not mean that, most of the dissent really melted away. And so the Council of Nicaea came up with the following creed, which I will read for you in full. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth, who because of us men and because of our salvation came down, and became incarnate and became man, and suffered and rose again on the third day, and ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. But as for those who say there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance, or created, or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. This creed is putting Arius square in its crosshairs. It uses his hated word homoousius, translated here as from the substance of the Father. It anathematizes his famous line that there was a time when the Son was not, and that he came into being out of nothing. Arius, unsurprisingly, refused to sign on to this creed. Few others joined him. Those few would soon feel the weight of their dissent, for Constantine had called this council to enforce unity in the church, and he was not about to let the dissenters continue to sow discord in his empire. Arius, two Libyan bishops who had stuck with him to the end, and all the rest were exiled from the Roman Empire. Eusebius of Nicomedia would join them in exile a few months later. He had tried to have his cake and eat it too by signing the creed, but continuing to permit anti-Nicene priests to practice in his diocese. Constantine was not having it. This was not the first time that a Christian had been exiled from the empire for their beliefs. Back in the 3rd century, a group of bishops had petitioned the pagan emperor Aurelius to exile a guy named Paul of Samosata, who was a notorious modalist. Aurelius didn't care what the Christians thought, but he saw that there seemed to be more people opposed to Paul than for him, so he decided to go ahead and exile Paul just to shut everyone up. Constantine's program of exiles was different. For him, the success and unity of the empire depended on the unity of the church. There is no longer any way to be a religious dissident without being a political criminal, too. To be a heretic is automatically to be condemned by law. Arius is the first target of this new ecclesial political alliance, but he will be far from the last. We will return to the legacy of exile and the victory of the Homoousians at the end of the episode. 
But there is more to Nicaea than just the issue of Arius. Because once all of these bishops gathered together, they decided it would be a good chance to hammer out some other things that had been bothering everybody for a long time. First and foremost among these pressing matters was exactly when Easter should be celebrated. This is a more complicated problem than it may first seem. Judaism uses a lunar calendar rather than the solar calendar, and according to the Bible, Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. So, some Christians were just copying the local synagogue's notes. They found out what day in their solar calendar corresponded to 14 Nisan, and they just celebrated Easter that day. Others, particularly those associated with Roman Alexandria, for starters, they noticed that the modern Jewish calendar sometimes puts the 14th of Nisan very early, even before the spring equinox. I mean, how are you supposed to have kids run around outside hunting for eggs and tell stories about Easter bunnies when Easter happens before it's really spring? I jest, of course, but these Christians did think that the modern Jewish calendar simply wasn't adequate for finding the date of Easter. I mean, 14 Nisan didn't even have to fall on a Sunday. So these Christians said they needed to calculate their own date for Easter instead of relying on the Jewish calendar. I will spare you the punishingly intricate details of how they wound up calculating Easter, but suffice it to say that Nicaea decided two things. Christians were going to calculate Easter independently of the Jewish tradition, and they should all calculate it the same way. This is a big deal. As I said, in the time before Constantine, Christians didn't have many opportunities to standardize their practices since their religion was illegal. So Nicaea is the first chance Christians have to make sure that all of them, all across the empire, are on the same page regarding the biggest celebration of the church year. So Nicaea decreed that all Christians were now going to celebrate Easter on the same day using the same calculations. So, unsurprisingly, churches immediately came up with several different ways of calculating Easter and immediately began arguing about when Easter should be all over again. You might know that to this day, Eastern Orthodox churches celebrate Easter on a different day than Roman Catholic and Protestant churches. This is a legacy of these different calculations that come out of the Council of Nicaea. But they didn't know that yet. They thought they had just solved one of the biggest problems in Christianity. And feeling quite chipper about their progress after coming up with a creed and an Easter calculation, they went on to put out some more rules governing the empire's churches in 20 laws called canons. C-A-N-O-N-S. These canons can be put into a couple of different groups based on what they were covering, and I'm going to go through those with you now. One group of canons concerned candidates for ordination. Many of these rules had to do with regulating the candidate's sexuality, and some of them seem to have been specifically directed against the legacy of origin. Starting right off the bat, canon number one says that no self-castrated people can be clergy. If you were castrated by a doctor or a barbarian, then that is okay. But no self-castrating, that's not allowed. Then, canons 15 and 16 forbid clergy from being ordained by a bishop who isn't theirs, or skipping between provinces until they find a bishop who they like. 
That is all straight up preventing a second origin from arising. And perhaps also a recognition that Arius had just tried to run Origen's playbook by looking for a bishop who would be favorable to him. Canon 3 says that clergy cannot live with a woman who isn't a close family relation, a scandalous situation that was apparently common enough to merit prohibition. It doesn't have anything in particular to do with the controversy over the sun, but just one of those issues of priests coloring outside the lines that take up so much of the average bishop's day. There are other canons in this group that just cover some basics you would hope everybody was already doing, although the need for the canons suggests that hope is in vain. Canon 2, for example, says that you can't be ordained straight after being converted. You need some time to learn the faith first. Canon 9 then says that if you have committed a crime, you can't be ordained. Another group of canons concerns what to do with the so-called lapsed. These lapsed were the Christians who had renounced their faith during the Great Persecution and then returned to the church after the persecution ended. Many of them had given up the names of other Christians to the persecutors and had given up Bibles and church artifacts to be burned. So now the church had to figure out what to do with these repentant traitors. Canon 10 says that the lapsed are not allowed to be ordained. You can come back into the church, but you may not be a deacon, priest, or bishop. Canon 11 states that although the lapsed don't deserve mercy, the church will grant it anyway, and prescribes a 12-year period of repentance before they become full members of the church again. It's a rather shocking thing to read in a Christian document that anybody doesn't deserve mercy, and speaks to the incredible depth of feeling still present over the great persecution. Catechumens, those who hadn't yet been baptized, who had lapsed, only had to do three years of penitence. That's in Canon 14. The final group of canons was all about the authority of the bishops themselves, and these are among the most interesting of the canons of Nicaea. For starters, Canon 4 says that a bishop is to be ordained by every other bishop in his province. If you can't get all the bishops together, then you at least need three. But in every province, the Metropolitan has the final say-so as to who gets ordained a bishop. You may not have heard that word Metropolitan before. It refers to the bishop who presides over the largest, most important city in a given province. It's Metropolis, in other words. These would be places like Alexandria, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and in later years, Constantinople. Now this was in part because Christianity had first spread in the cities, so the big city bishops had seniority over their rural counterparts. But it also mapped ecclesial power structures onto the structures of the Roman Empire. The places that were most important for the empire were also the most important in the church. And the canons would really double down on this distribution of power. Canon 6 is so juicy that I have to read it in full. Let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail, that the Bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the Bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges. And this is to be generally understood 
that if any one be made bishop without the consent of the Metropolitan, the great Senate has declared that such a man ought not to be a bishop. If, however, two or three bishops shall, from natural love of contradiction, oppose the common suffrage of the rest, it being reasonable and in accordance with the ecclesiastical law, then let the choice of the majority prevail. First of all, the phrase natural love of contradiction is excellent, and makes it very clear that the bishops had indeed seen a church or two before. The second, and perhaps most interesting point, is that this canon reinforces the authority of the Bishop of Alexandria by referencing the custom of Rome. Many Roman Catholics will get very excited about this. They will point to this as evidence of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome in the Church. See, look, they'll say, the Church is resolving its issues by seeing what Rome does and just copying that. Non-Roman Catholics will dispute this, of course. For starters, the canon also references the ancient traditions in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis as the basis of its authority, not just Rome. Second, the canon seems to be saying that the Bishop of Alexandria will have the exact same authority as the Bishop of Rome, rather than being subordinate to him. In either case, what is clear is that authority lies with bishops. Bishops decide who gets ordained. There is an order of seniority that determines which bishops call the shots between themselves, and bishops control who is in the church and who isn't. Canon 5 gives bishops the sole right to excommunicate and readmit people to the church. And if one bishop excommunicates you, you can't just run to another guy to get readmitted. You have to go to the same bishop who kicked you out to get let back in. Seen in this way, one of the legacies of Nicaea is the general triumph of bishops over other models of authority. Arius was a charismatic teacher who had in many ways tried to copy the example of Origen. He fought with his bishop, left to find a more agreeable supervisor, and then continued to um, <clears throat> correct his errant foe from afar. Origen could get away with all that. Arius got excommunicated, exiled, and the council outlawed the methods he had used in his fight. Monasticism was still quite new at this time, and by virtue of their status as a bunch of lay people living in the desert, the monks didn't really get to have much of a say at the council. The bishops were the only ones invited. The bishops called the shots, and the bishops laid down this set of canons that standardized and consolidated their power many of which are still observed today. And so you might be thinking that this is exactly the sort of fairy tale ending you'd expect at the end of a story. Arius is deposed, Constantine has unified his church, and Alexander can ride off into the sunset with his young protege Athanasius, exchanging a look of sacerdotal satisfaction at a job well done, a heretic well deposed. But, oh no, my friends. Oh, no, no, no. For the alert among you may have noticed a few oddities and loose ends in our story. For one thing, the Nicene Creed that I read is missing a whole bunch of stuff about the Holy Spirit that's in the creed you read in church. And many of the greatest heroes and villains of the controversy, like Athanasius himself, have barely had any time on the screen thus far. For though the participants of the council could not see it at the time, 
storm clouds were already gathering on the horizon. Some of the bishops who had signed on to the creed were none too happy about it, including the powerful and newly rehabilitated Eusebius of Caesarea, and a few of the pro-Nicenes would not prove adept in navigating the turbulent waters of imperial politics. Within a few years, one of the staunchest advocates of Nicaea will be deposed from his see after making what may be the worst time joke about someone's mother in the history of the world. And as the church convulsed and roiled with the aftershocks and blowback from this extraordinary council, they began to suspect what we now know, that they had not even made it halfway down the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.